Hello and welcome to the 174th episode of The Softest Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their differences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, so this is focused on development themselves, and the second half we discuss the game to hit Moat, which in this case is A Case of Distrust, by Ben Wander. Ben! Hello. Who Hi, are you? I'm... What do you do? I'm Ben Wander, and I made A Case of Distrust. Um, I did the art, the code, the writing for, for that entire game. Wow. That's all of the things. So Almost. Yeah. I didn't do the music. The music is the hardest part, and I can't do any of it. But it's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. A really good friend of mine uh, named Mark Wilson was the, the audio guy. Yeah, we uh, had a bit of a, a snippet of it at the beginning of the show. As we regular listeners know, I, I draw music from the game we're talking about because the show itself doesn't have any music of its own. Why should it? Let's have the music of the game present itself. So how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games as opposed to regular analog board games? <laughs> <laughs> That's what a friend of mine yeah. calls them flashy, lighty video games. Like, Okay, fine. Well, the flashy, lighty games can also be pinball. I mean, that's, that's yes. the flashiest and lightiest. Um, in, in terms of getting started with video games, I, I knew from a really, really young age that I wanted to make games. Uh, when I was 11, I picked up a magazine and flipped through it and went, right, this is a gaming magazine. That means there's an industry there. That means somebody has to be making these things. Uh, and it sort of struck me. I think I was 10 years old or something. And, uh, and since then, I, I'd known I'd wanted to be in this industry. And I started... Uh, first learning 3D modeling in cracked versions of Maya. And then I got into programming in high school. And then I I went and got a, a gig with uh, EA at first, and then a few other companies, and then circled back to EA. And then I, I quit those jobs and became an indie dev. And now I'm here talking to you about that game. So tell us a little bit about what was your first game you made, you think, you can remember, that was a fully functioning thing that was worth anyone's time? Oh, I don't know if it was worth anyone's time. Uh, but, <laughs> well, you made it, uh, so it must be something. There you go. Yeah, it was worth my time. Yeah. It, it was worth that. I made a, I made a poker game with really what I had assumed was really complicated AI, but if I look back on it, it probably isn't. Um, and when I was 16, maybe, I made it in... in this tutorial programming language, this learning programming language called Turing, um, and it was it was really fast. I mean, the the very first thing I did when I found out about programming was I made a tower defense game, and it wasn't even a full game. It was just these uh, image sprites moving across the screen and another image sprite doing damage on them until those sprites disappeared, and that was. I, I spent, I don't know, a month on that because I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and, and I wouldn't consider that a full game. I mean, it didn't have menus or anything, but that was so much fun to understand that, oh, wow, you know, my, my dad was a mechanical engineer and my mom was an accountant, so there wasn't any software engineering or programming in my house. And I had no idea that this was a thing that I could take my art, which I'd been doing up until that point, and make it move. And that that was revolutionary for me that was um you know i had a revelation of oh wow i can do this and so the very first thing i did was i tried to uh what 
was a tower defense game, and I only thought of as Burbnagog because I guess that's what Warcraft Three had back in that day. Wow, yeah, I mean it's um, sense of empowerment that you have when you program a string of characters, no matter what the string is, and then you hit return and run or whatever you have to do or F ten or something, and it does something you tell you actually tell it it does the thing you told it to do. As opposed yeah, even to, if that thing yeah. is wrong. Yeah. Even, if, even if you told it to do the wrong thing. It's like, it's like, oh, well, I didn't want you to do that, but that's even more cool. Let's go with this then. I, I forgot the semicolon, but now you've actually got an infinite loop of hell. But hey, doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, no, I could definitely need a sense of empathy there. That sense of, uh, you know, that the, 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 I've always said that programming is a means to an end. And this uh, sounds very sort of glib and almost down on programming. It's not. It's a tool. It's a means by which you tell a computer to do something. That's all it is. And there are various ones. Some are better than others. Some are faster yep. than others. Some are more efficient than others. Some aren't really languages at all. It's um, when you go to assembly, which I suspect you and I well, did a little bit back in the day. But that's telling <laughs> switches to turn off. And then when they turn off, they turn on somewhere else. Because that's all a computer is. Yeah, um, I, I yeah. don't envy the the Game Boy programmers or or you know on on machines even before that who had to. I think Game Boy Advance even still was programmed in assembly when it first launched, which is insane. Indeed, I mean, it's just going straight to the hardware and say, you know, one zero zero. I see no hexadecimal, isn't it? But anyway, yeah, it's just insane, insane. And someone had to do it. And someone had to figure all that out, and they still made some amazing games on those machines, I know, for, from personal experience. So, yeah, it's... Um, but now we use high-level languages, thank God. And uh, it's it's very sort of emboldening and enlightening and, and empowering to have all these different engines and languages working together and people actually figuring it out and realise that back in the day, you did, know t- did need to know high-level mathematics. You really did. Uh, or very strange abstract concepts. But now, not so much. Am I right in thinking Yeah, that? and... I, I think I have some, you know, uh, programmer friends who scoff at, you know, using Unity or something to make a game. But I, I love it. I think the the more people we can have making games, the more interesting the games are going to become. If we limit it to people who know how to do assembly programming, then the games that we make are going to be the same games over and over because it turns out assembly programming is really hard and you just want to get it to work. Yes, yes. And um, I think I said this before on the show, but not for many months. So you can't take a drink, listeners. We need more people who have no interest in Star Wars making video games. <laughs> right, right. Basically. You know, and that's what you're alluding to, isn't it? You're saying that, you know, you're gonna get people making Lord of the Rings again and again, and that's fine. I I guess. Or is it? No, it's not. So, you know, now we're in a situation where people aren't tied to having to learn advanced assembly to make games, and that's why it's become so so divergent, so spread out and, and, and all-encompassing. And topics are now very peculiar, as we're going to talk about in the case of distrust. I mean, I'm going to delve deep into, into why is it that later. <laughs> but before we delve into that, I want to know, and this next question, I, I have difficulty asking it because it's not a rude question, or, but uh, most developers, and they sort of, 
blanch at it because it's, it's so nebulous and uh, it doesn't seem to mean anything. So I'm going to flesh it out for you. The question is, what are your biggest influences as a creator? Okay, uh, that 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 is a that is a big question. Um, so it could be a book, or it could be the yeah. universe itself. It could be anything. Just go with it. Go oh, with the it. universe itself sounds like a great answer because <laughs> that that encompasses absolutely everything, right? Well, um, this one anyway. You don't know about the other universes, but yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's only good. the universe that I'm in. And yes. my answer is very definite. This <laughs> one particular universe. Yes. Um, I I think the biggest influence on me, I mean, uh, is video games in general. Uh, I as much as I consume other media, I still love games the most of of, of doing anything. I mean, of it's my favorite hobby. It's my career. I read about them. I play them. Um, I do really strive to get influences from other sources. I think it's very important to not only be influenced by video games, but the biggest influence is is just games in general. Uh, beyond that, I think looking at art and art history is really important. My current game is inspired by 1950s poster and graphic design, and that's unique kind of for video games, but not really that unique of an art style in the broader art world. So it's it's cool because I, I see people say, hey, I haven't seen a, a game that looks like yours ever. And I'm thinking, great, I managed to, to take a, a style that was used somewhere else and bring it into our medium. And now people who, who play games a lot, now they know about it and they can experience it. And I've, and I've told people about, you know, the influences in the game and what they are. And that's gotten some people to, to look that stuff up and be more interested in it. So I think stuff like that is great and important to, to be able to make your own creation stand out. It uh, reminds me, I don't know if you know this, you've been to London, but there are some tube stations where they have listed sort of parts of them that they can't take down anymore. And for a while, they had like this sort of, uh, I don't know, this sort of retro sort of series of adverts for London Underground as it was in the 30s. And it reminds me a lot of a case of distrust and these very stark sort of um, bold colours, not not a lot of texture going on, just bland, not bland, no, not bland, but contrasting colours. And um, I think it's postmodern. I think it is. I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm not an artist. I'm not going to pretend to be. But um, is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Sort of, yeah. Uh, so that that uh, design was taken into the film world by a guy named Saul Bass. And if you look up Saul Bass and you put my game next to it, you go, oh, right, you just stole his art. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not, okay, it's not quite that close because uh, I did deviate from his style a little bit but specifically his oranges and blacks which aren't really black and his whites which aren't really white um, those are the things that I, I really took from him uh, and and furthering his career beyond making movie posters he started making credit sequences intro credit sequences to, to movies and those are really the first time that anybody used interesting transitions instead of just a, a cut that you know you literally cut the film and pasted it together in a separate place he did things like a magnifying glass that would come in and then come out and it would be a different scene out of it or all of these different 
squares that would move around and shift and then it would it would have a new scene behind it um so those things really influenced a lot of the animations in a case of distress so really it was it was from him and a few other graphic designers at the time that that i got a lot of my inspiration i can't tell you what art period that is i don't know that much about it but um i i experienced a lot of that stuff from uh looking at uh, a website for years called art of the title which is all about intro movie sequences and and how brilliant some of them are and that's where i found out about saul bass and that's where i started getting in- really interested in in this era of of art history well that's a, that's a great inspiration definitely to draw from the past like that is that here's a man who created the transition that we now use on uh i don't know premiere or something <laughs> it's like yeah it's his fault you know we do yeah. these you know it's his fault that we do these weird transitions now that no one you know use it once you go that looks dumb yeah but you know it's something that uh you did and it's 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 now accredited to the pun no pun intended to this man it's wonderful wonderful so there's a great thing to be drawn you know inspired by to be like you know let's look at art from the past which people have forgotten for reasons you know that, uh, i think what's quite striking is when i see something from the 90s it's quite oh it's, why is it so bright? What's it? Was these weird yeah. squiggles everywhere? And what's this about? You know, because you, there's lots of retro stuff going on, and, and you know, you see the old ads from PlayStation. Like that looks terrible. And you, right. you, you don't remember it that way because you were just surrounded by it. You thought it was okay. Like this is awful. Like yeah, it's all very garish and bright and and happy and, and carefree and innocent. <laughs> <laughs> apparently but yes I mean, but this this is this is probably going to dive in, into a, a a tangent but uh i i really do think that a lot of art is cyclical and in 20 years we're going to look at that stuff and realize hey i haven't seen anything like this before well you might not have or you might not remember it but 40 years ago you know in in the early 90s or whenever whatever timeline we're in this was this happened everywhere and it happened so much that like you just said it became garish and and overblown and overdone and then nobody did it for a while and and i really think that you know fashion is cyclical art cycles and and um looking backwards you don't even have to look backwards to things that are garish, that, or at least that you think are garish, because nobody's going to like that. But look back far enough, and you'll find art styles that aren't that aren't garish that that you like, that you can appreciate, but that you notice nobody's really doing. And I think that's a really powerful tool. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's like there's only six stories told, and this sort of thing. We hear this. We don't understand it. We don't intellectualize it. We can't. We 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 we, be, we like to think it's true. There's only six stories, and it's a bit sweeping, really. Yeah, ultimately, <laughs> yes. And then you start breaking it down and breaking it down. And yes, it will. So it's like the six degrees of you know from Kevin Bacon. Like what? Right. Yeah. So what's this about? And you study it and you realize, oh, I see. All life is actually a common point. So my next question to you is uh, again. A difficult one to answer because you probably don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But the question is, what developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Ooh. Do I most admire in the industry? That's really interesting. I think I'd have to go with Tim Schafer. Mostly because um, he himself and the studio that he created... um, 
don't ever do the same thing twice. Or I guess now that they're making Psychonauts 2, that's uh, false. But rarely do the same thing twice. And I, I really love that idea that he himself and then the people that he's hired, he allows them to just find the most creative bone in their body, come up with some new concept and then run with it. And it doesn't matter if the studio has never done that before. And it doesn't matter if, you know, the the world hasn't seen something quite like that before. And sometimes that fails and that's fine. I'll, I'll admit I, I didn't like Iron Brigade. I just, I never got into it, but I loved stacking. I thought stacking was phenomenal. And both of those kind of come from the same place of let's just let our creative juices keep going and and see what comes up from it. Um, you know, uh, watching the documentary that they did, I understand that maybe that's not the most profitable way to run a games company. But for me, it's the most fun and the most admirable, I guess. It um, is a great man. He's a great raconteur. He's a great storyteller. Uh, and he's, he's he's very engaging as a person. He's seeing, and he has a re- he really cares about the medium, doesn't he? he? Really has has a huge huge passion for it. And of course he does. Otherwise he would still be doing it after all these decades. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And and but beyond, I guess I, I focused on Double Fun, but even beyond that, they run now the Day of the Devs in uh, early November in San Francisco, where it's this big show that they put on for just their own cost. They don't, they don't ask, I, as far as I know, they don't ask any developers to pay anything. They just rent out this big place, pay for all the electricity and everything, uh, and have indie devs just come in and, and show off their games. Uh, and I think that stuff like that is wonderful, just promoting new, interesting, and different things. Yes, it reminds me of something called uh, the Left Field Collection, which is we have uh, Eurogamer Expo and Resd in here in the UK. Right, two yeah, expos, and yeah. They have this corridor. It's a corridor of games called the Left Field Collection, and there's no hoardings. The developers just have to plonk their computer down, then they draw on the on the wall <laughs> with with a sharpie the name of their 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 game. They might underline it. They might put the controls on the wall as well. They might even have a high score table. But some of those games on there uh, aren't really there for you know commercial gain. They're just there because they exist. You know, it's, it's some yeah. people. I just made this game. Why? Because I just <laughs> for the sake of it. Are yeah. you going you to send? No, it's not, no. It's just making it. Enjoy it. Have have fun. Experience it. Oh, okay. So it's quite extraordinary to, to making a game for the, the game's sake, and. Um, I didn't. I mean, it just threw me. I thought, well, well why? These are creators. Why wouldn't they do that? You know, they're not. It doesn't always have to be about commercial gain. They just want to share their creative juices. Right. Exactly. There's plenty of people who play instruments but never want to be in a professional rock band or yeah. anything. I mean, these games are amazing. I mean, one of the ones that I remember most fondly was this strange sort of puppet game where they put sensors all over the puppets and they linked it to an iPad. And then you basically had these two puppets beat the living crap out of each other. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> and sounds then, great. And some of them said, well, how are you going to monetize this? And the, 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 the expression on the developer's face, like, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> I can't. No one, you can't build this, mass produce. If, if you tried, it would just dilute, be diluted to a point of meaningless. Right, yeah. It, yeah. 
and Walmart isn't going to sell, you know, two puppets and an iPad together. No, they're not going to sell it. So you need an iPad to run it and all these pads and these pressure sensitive pads which you're going to make. No. Yeah. No. And by the end of the weekend, they were just wrecked. Right. Of course. Yeah. So even more reason why you can't. No, no. Idiot. <laughs> but that's how people think, you know, it's strange. So, it's an excellent answer. Thank you very, very much for that. So, I've got the, the last question of the first half. See? You made it. Well done. Oh, right. Well, uh, almost. We'll see. Almost, almost. So, this question I'm legally asked you, uh, required to ask you because we're talking about video games on a podcast. Therefore, I have to ask you this question. What are you playing right now? Oh, that's a great question. I'm playing a really fun game called Dream Daddy. And for those who don't know, Dream Daddy is a dad dating simulator where you play a hot dad dating other hot dads, all while trying to raise your 18-year-old daughter who's about to go off to college. And the reason I know that pitch word for word is because I sat next to them at Indiecade and heard them give it for three days straight. Oh, <laughs> but it's no and and uh, eventually we actually swapped seats with each other and i was pitching their game and they were pitching my game so that actually made it way more fun i got to pitch a different game that's lovely um, that's really it's cool it's great so they and, you just said well you like this game right yeah i like yeah. your game right yeah well do you want to swap pause okay you like just realizing they got nothing to lose and neither yeah, of you yeah, exactly this is exactly. a love that's a lovely moment that's cool yeah. there uh, i mean the games industry in general, I've realized, is full of really warm, welcoming people, especially especially on the indie side of things. Yeah, uh, Our games are so small uh, and so cheap to sell that I can be successful and everybody in this room, you know, at IndieCade or at E3 or wherever can also be successful at the same time. And we don't have to compete with each other. I'm not looking to poach anyone from you. I just want to make sure that my game's good. Your game's good. Let's just have a fun time. It doesn't re- really happen that you know one developer says, "Oh, you've got a good artist on your team, haven't you?" Yes. Would you mind if I just sort of, you know, gave him, ask him for his, you know, resume and what? Nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't really, really happen, does it? I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, I, I suppose I don't have a big enough studio to have dealt with this yet. I'm sure it'll happen eventually, but yeah. Thus far, I don't know if. I don't. I can't remember the last time I've seen a resume. I think it was at EA. I mean, it's just if if I work with anyone or if the studio hires anyone, it's all through word of mouth these yeah. days. It's all you know. Hey, this person's looking for a job. What have they done? Where do I know them from? Oh, okay, cool. Let's add them in. Yeah, they've done this. You play. Oh, really? They did that. That's normally right. react. That's normally reaction, isn't it? Because you know, one or two people worked on X game. Like, Wait, they did that? Really? Like, you know, the game at the moment, we'll talk about Celeste. Like, oh, yeah, he did that. Did he? Right. We'll get him in then. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, they don't, you don't need that 20-page CV. You know, just, right. <laughs> I mean, if you've got that one long, that long, is something wrong anyway. But, uh, yeah, one day, there was me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So, um, Dream Daddy, yes. I, I do know the game. I haven't played it yet. People oh, it's so much me. fun. Yeah, it's not about I actually... Just... Um, I was told, actually, it's not really about dating. It's about something far greater than that. Is that right? I would say it's mostly about raising your daughter. Right. It's a game where your daughter is kind of in her last year of high school. She's getting ready to go off to college, and there is a bunch of... 
really, you know, teenager things, but that are difficult for her to deal with for obvious reasons that you have to be there as a dad for her and, and try to do the best you can, even if she's not being the best at certain points in her life. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really cute. The only reason I've waited this song to play it, I, you know, I was, I was sat next to them at IndieCade, uh, in September and then I've just been crunching on my game since then. Yeah. Uh, so I finally, you know, I can put I can put the keyboard away. I have some free time for a little bit. And the first thing I wanted to jump in after was was Dream Daddy, and it's it's a really good time. I'm having a blast with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's rated highly from uh, many people I know. So uh, yeah, excellent. Okay, well that's the end of the first half. T, you did it. Right. Um, so now we're going to delve deep into a case of distrust in the second half. First question is the zeroth question. It's not really a question at all. You know, you talk about pitches earlier. <laughs> well, you've got yeah. to do it again. Please tell us what is a case of distrust. So, a case of distrust is a narrative mystery game from 1924 San Francisco, and you play as Detective Phyllis Malone, and she's trying to solve a case full of deceit and deception. It plays sort of like a mix between a narrative choose-your-own-adventure story and a point-and-click mystery. And I sort of combine those so that you search for clues in locations in a point-and-click fashion, and then you're talking to suspects, and some of those suspects might be lying to you. And based on what they're saying, you have to decide who's lying to you and why, and after you do that, you sort of unwrap a new layer of the mystery. It does go. It is like an onion. <laughs> you keep peeling away. Yeah. It keeps going and going and going. And uh, so, my first question is: I want to talk about the setting, if I may. I believe, yeah. from what I can gather, from what I've read and seen, and uh, it seems to be set between the two world wars. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. It's set in 1924. What do you think is the fascination with this particular period, and what do you think we can learn from it? So. Specifically with the 1920s, at least the way that I see it, it's an era that's far enough away to feel very foreign for anyone who's alive today, and yet close enough that a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same politics were present in that time period. Um, I, I think probably the most obvious example is in the U.S., the prohibition of alcohol. Uh, the fact that for 10, uh, no, what was it, 12 years almost, uh, alcohol was nationally prohibited in the United States. And what that gave rise to, uh, especially, you know, gangsters and bootleggers and the gray areas that that created of, well, yeah, these gangsters are doing illegal stuff and the means of procuring alcohol is probably not the best, but also the vast majority of the population wants a drink. So who's really the bad guy here? 
um, and how that kind of relates to the way that we're treating drugs in our current society and if that's the right way of doing it you know a, a lot of crime happens around that and i i don't ever want to spell out an opinion for the player but i, I do want to present them with similar themes and ask them to make the connections and and maybe maybe the themes are similar but not the same maybe the outcome shouldn't be the same but a lot of these questions we've asked before and it's really interesting to go back to a time period that for most of us, I mean, unless you're 90 and you're playing this game, it's a, it's a time that hasn't been politicized for you. You're not on one side of the argument or another because of what somebody told you. You're seeing a lot of this for the first time, and in your head you can think about, okay, well, what do I think is the right thing right now? And I'm hoping that you can take that with you and apply that same lens to the world around you today. Yeah, it's... um. It's quite interesting. You hear the exchanges between characters, and you think, "Well, they're a bit naive about this, or they they haven't got." No, that's not how it works. You know, <laughs> it's just, yeah. no, that's that's not no, because they were just after the Great War, as they called it, and because the, the, that was mm -hmm. that was it. That was the Great War. It was the war. The, yeah. the war. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the next one wasn't due for another twenty-five years or so, twenty years. Uh, so, <laughs> which, which you know, it was 24. It's before the, you know, that's when Germany was in its lowest ebb. You know, they were yeah. destitute. They were, everyone, yeah. So you, you, you see these stories and the, the, he, he, these exchanges and I just have my, I find myself a smile appear on my face going, you have no idea. <laughs> right, <laughs> you, right. You have right, no idea yeah. where this is going, you know. So, um, I mean, there's this very early in the game where you find a, a, a uh, a clipping or a newspaper clipping about the the, the death of Lenin, and they say, "Oh well, right. that's, that's the end of the Bolsheviks." Like, oh boy, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and a lot no. of people thought that. Yeah. A lot of people thought, oh, "Hey, with it. Lenin gone, that's yeah, it. You that's know, it. The Red Menace is gone. We're fine." Yeah. Yep. Thanks, Trotsky. Anyway, <laughs> uh, in fact, quite the opposite happened, as we all know. Uh, and we're still dealing with this today. And that's what I wanted to f focus on. I wasn't throwaway statement I just said. This is a, you know, all good fiction is a reflection on our current times, regardless of what the fiction is about. Because you're a writer, you're a creator, you're going to be influenced by what you see and hear and read about. And whether you like it or not, subconsciously or consciously, you're going to create a message in your, in your, in your pieces, in what you make. And that's why I wanted to talk about this because it's a, a wonderful, wonderful setting. It's perfect, perfect setting for 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 what this is about. Because this is about, this is a murder mystery that keeps on giving, and giving, and uh, the more you dig, the more unraveling it becomes. And uh, we're going to talk about that later in this 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 section. But before I do, I want to talk about the writing and the artwork. They're very, I believe, closely intertwined. How difficult have you found it to not have one medium overwhelm the other? Yeah, wow, that's a that's a very good question, and I struggled with that a lot to begin with. Um, I don't know how it is for every creator. I don't know how it is for every game developer, but for me, creating a game is a cycle of me thinking that I have no idea what I'm doing, what's going on, 
and then thinking that I'm making the best game in the world. And that not only happens with the game overall, but it also happens individually with the different parts of the game that I'm working on. And so it, at various points, I was in my low point and, oh, well, the story is crap. And then at another point, I was, oh, well, the gameplay really sucks. Oh, well, the art style really doesn't work. I need to completely rework it. And I think through all these cycles, uh, because I was the one person making all of those things, again, except the audio, which I think Mark is just so talented that he he had one crack at it and went, yep, right, this is it, it's perfect, and I agreed. <laughs> yeah, because um, he had that, that we, we, again, we had another slip of it just before we went into the second section here. And it's just that yeah. really atmospheric, it just gets you... You've got the art, you've got the writing, which is the cadence of it, is of its, its period as well. You must have read some books back from then because the, the cadence of the language, the amount of, the amount of people think people would talk a lot more than they do now. You know, that's what happened back then. They would speak, they would say, you know, large uh, volumes of, of, of text, if you will, or great speeches for, for ages to, to like, a yes would have done. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, and, it was really yeah. interesting. I, I, um, I, for the writing specifically, I was really influenced by, uh, like you said, kind of the the writing of the time and a lot of hard boiled uh, American mystery novels. So, I, I grew up on Agatha Christie and uh, on Sherlock Holmes and all of these wonderful, fantastic uh, mystery novels. But I didn't really get into the hard boiled fiction until a few years ago, right. and I started reading it and. There's some really cool stuff in there. If, if uh, you know, if you or if anybody listening has not read The Maltese Falcon, I highly recommend that book. That is that is such a great book, and that's what really started this fascination that I had with this type of detective fiction, um, this hard-boiled noir mystery setting. Uh, and I, I read a lot of books from that period, from Dashiell Hammond and from Raymond Chandler and and all of the different authors of that era. And I tried really hard to emulate that style of writing. It is tricky mm. because even though my game is a narrative-based game, you, you will do a lot of reading. Yeah, It still has to be much more concise than a novel can be. In a novel, you can spend three paragraphs describing how a person's shoe looks. People will just put down my game if I do that. And and I realize that. I realize that even me, who I'm making this game, and I love narrative games, you know, uh, especially some of the work Inkle's done, some of the Wad Jedi stuff. I love that stuff. I was having trouble going through my own game because it was too verbose. Because I'm not here reading a book. I'm here playing a game. I want more interaction. This is This is the agreement I've made with you. I'm the player... And you are the game designer, so give me something more to do. And so it was a really interesting balance of of trying to stay true to that style while also being concise enough and and uh, giving enough actions to my player to make it interesting for them. And it really works because you break up the paragraphs. It's ingenious. Well, I don't know. It was just <laughs> you just have like you read a bit. We go, okay. Well, there's some more to say. And you click and you read the next paragraph because that's how you're digesting the information and the, the painting the world. You're not painting it with, you know, what you could have done with the vast sort of, could have created a real world setting, almost Mafia 2 like, if you will, or something similar. You could have done that 
would have taken you five, ten, twenty years, but he could have done that. (laughs) But instead, it's like, well, let's credit the reader or the game player with some intelligence, which is something that a lot of indie developers do these days. You know, they'll 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 put they'll pull a game out. They won't even show the controls. Like, well, they everyone knows that the left sticks to move, right? (laughs) Everyone knows that green A is to do something, right? Yeah. Well, if we go then. We'll have to tell you that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's just, I mean, you know, we know that. I mean, granted, if you get someone, if you put a uh, a modern controller with someone who hasn't used video games for a while, it's horrifying. It is. It is. Look at yeah. it. 14 yeah, buttons yeah. of mess. But to you and I, it's like, well, yeah, that's, of course, that's how, that's how they evolved from the Atari stick. Of course, that's how it ended up. What were we supposed to do? <laughs> we couldn't, couldn't keep with one button and one joystick. That was ridiculous. But what you've done here is used text with a very deliberate pacing, which is much slower than what you're used to. I mean, we're used to reading Twitter, for God's sake, whether we like <laughs> it or not. And that's it. You know, if we showed someone Twitter back then, they would A, be horrified, <laughs> and B, like, well, why is everyone speaking in this sort of stuttered two or three word sentences? Well, because that's how we we talk it's how it is um so it's just i just i just wanted to get that out of you it's just so amazing how you somehow delicately balanced the the art with the text you could have made the text a little bit bigger i mean i'm sure you struggled with that you know the actual difference between what was going on with the screen and how where you place the text versus with the, the the major images it's uh generally it's in the middle i mean did you use the idea that most people look at the middle third of the screen? Was that the idea? Yeah, I tried to keep it sort of, like you said, in the middle third uh, at at the... I'm going to say something that's not true, so maybe I shouldn't say it. But <laughs> I, I tried to, in most scenes, like you said, keep it sort of in the middle third of the of the frame. It's not always there. I mean, the, the good thing is... When once you're used to reading the text of the game, you search for it in yes. whatever scene yeah. you're in. Yeah. So the further you get from the beginning, I I can place I can, I can be a little more coy with where I place the text so it looks good in the scene, um, but that you can still read it. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, most of the text is either uh, right in the center of the screen or on one of the thirds of the screen. Typically. Cool. Cool. So, how is the storyline? structured um is it a bushel or is it a tree is it a, i don't know i mean you don't want to yeah. reveal too much but you know i'm just talking about abstract here because there's this, sure. this idea that a bushel is like starts off a single point spreads out in the middle to a vast and then starts to coalesce to a point to a single point i don't think you've got that here have you well i, it, I guess it depends kind of how you think about it yeah the at the very end, there's always one culprit. And that was really important to me thematically for, for the different elements of the story in the game. But also, I mean, it's a mystery, damn it. It doesn't matter what choices you make. It's the culprit who, who did the thing. You yes. Know, you don't, I don't want your actions to dictate what happened. You know, you're, you're kind of going at it after the fact. Um, so it, it was important to me to keep that one culprit there. Um, the, the way that I thought about it was not how many branches can I give the story? It was, how can I change the character reactions that you're going to have? The, you, your choices in the game 
really impact the characters themselves and how they react to you. Um, so at the beginning of the game, it's kind of simple stuff. Do you say something that this character likes? Do you say something that they don't like? Are you trying to be coy with them and they realize that you're just, you know, brown nosing and they call you out on it? Or maybe they don't realize and they're having fun and they're, you know, they're super in into it. Um, and then later on in the game, once once the case really starts to open up, you have the option to really accuse anybody you meet of murder or of or of any number of things. Um, and they they might react poorly to that, as you would imagine. And, you know, based Can't on what? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And so, so based on what you've said to them or what you've accused them of or, or any number of things, uh, they might volunteer more or less information. They might talk to you about an interesting thing in their past or not. There's never a point in the game where you can't advance because you've made too many people upset. But there are easier and harder ways to get through the mystery, uh, depending on what you say to, to different people. Yeah, yeah. It's the journey, everyone, not the destination. <laughs> Another cliche brought to you by Chris O'Regan. Anyway, um, last question. I know, I know, all good things must come to an end, but uh, no. I want to talk about the interface now, which, again, can be a bit dry, but I want to talk to you about the relationship between the information you gather and how you can link that to the person you're talking to and engaging with and how did that develop and how did that come about so you for the listeners what happens is you click on an object and it gives you the description of that object or that thing or that person maybe and then it puts it automatically in a funky little notebook which back in the day you know when you're playing games in the 90s and we're talking about the 90s earlier, uh, on, on DOS games you didn't have a little notebook you had to write it down yourself uh, to figure out how to play these games, especially for Infocom, it's like, hang on, uh, <laughs> right, I can, okay, I'll, I can do this now. Okay, so uh, tell us about how that uh, came about and uh, the, the the genius interaction between notebook and the story itself. Yeah, well, again, going back to the the ebbs and and flows of game design, uh, this game was initially. It took a lot of heavy inspiration from a game called a board game called Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, where you do similar things. You go to different places around London in the late 1800s and you find people, you search for clues. And the one thing that that game does is you arrive at a location and it just tells you what's there. And initially, that's what my game did as well. You you got someplace and you you were told, okay, here's what you found at this location, and those three things popped up in your notebook. The problem with that was that you didn't feel very much like a detective. It felt like the character was doing the detection for you. And that was one of those low moments of, well, what am I making here? What is happening? What is going on? Right. The, the, re the reason that I initially went that way is because I didn't want this game to be a pixel hunting adventure game from the 90s. One of the, one of the things I don't like about those 90s adventure games, even though I love a lot of them, but one of the things that they collectively all do at a certain point is they ask you to find things in a room and they hide those things really I mean, they hide them well. It was just awful, that... wasn't it? Sorry. Yeah. To, I mean, it's just like, oh, wait, that that image, that little graphic that in the foreground looks exactly like everything else. 
Exactly. You haven't exactly. highlighted it anyway, and you right. say because I put my mouse over this one little pixel within it, and like, oh, you can interact it with that. Lights up. Yeah, really? exactly. Really, and you haven't done it this year. Just to be clear, everyone, no, no, no. Right, and so, yeah. so the what actually, uh, I so I was doing research more on okay, how could I? What style could I use so that it's obvious the things that you can click on, but you still have that action of searching around? And I came up with the silhouettes that you currently see in the game, where it's it's really obvious what's background and, and what's foreground, what you can click on, what you can't click on. Um, and uh, But there still are a lot of red herrings in the game. So even though it's not hard to search for things, the number of things that you find are so vast that when you ask characters about these things, and you can ask pretty much any character about pretty much any item in the game, you can you can ask them, hey, what do you think of this? Um, there are just so many entries in your notebook that you can't solve the mystery purely on a, I'm going to click every single thing and see what happens. You, you can't really, I mean, I suppose you could do that, but it'll take you a very long time. Um, and so that was kind of my goal was to not make it too simple with this rummaging around, searching around mechanic um, in terms of the the story of it, but to also not make it difficult to just find a thing. I never wanted my players to be stuck because, like you said, they didn't see the two pixel by two pixel square that they had to click on. It's this absurd, isn't it? But, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know any better about it. I didn't know. Um, I think what I like, what I like to model... Uh, the best detective would be in for 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 this is Colombo. I think his sort of lateral thinking and his uh, just just hang on, there's just one one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for me, that's what I I always when I was, when I'm playing the game, I'm going, well, what would he do? How would he link right. one thing? To, and that's way way easier to do that when you just put your project if you know that character enough you see enough his his output and maybe read some of his stuff you know this oh yeah he really would link one thing to the other because his, he knew cause and effect he understood cause and effect really well we know the phrase but do you understand what it really means and that's that's what i've done when i've played uh, case of distrust is just always use that that philosophy that ideal that everything has a cause. In effect, we'll say everything. This will go into quarks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yay, physics. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really well put together. I just, uh, I just really was impressed by how uh, careful you dealt with that because you, you could have gone, like I said, you could have done a, a pixel hunt, and that's like from 30 years ago. No, was that? No, was that? So it's a let's let's move on from that. That's a that's a design uh, decision that was bad then, and it's bad. It's even worse now, because game design is a skill that's evolved since then. I feel like it's, you know it, it's it's uh, uh, some aspects of game design from that period are great and stayed with us because they were great, and there's some aspects that were terrible that have long since gone for good reason. <laughs> you know, and that's right. and that's what you've done here. You've taken some aspects of it, an idea, i.e., you have a set static scene with some, you know, images of it which the player can interact with in a limited way. But you haven't punished them <laughs> by forcing them to scrape across the screen. By, because if they're doing that, they're not playing the game anymore. They're not invested in the world anymore. They're not invested in your story anymore. 
They're just mechanically going through the motions, which is the last thing you want, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, for me, I completely agree with that. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody loves pixel hunting, but if they do, they won't get that in this game. I'm sorry. Indeed. So, uh, Case of Distrust, it, uh, it's out on Windows, PC, and Mac. I can verify this because I played it on both because I have a Mac laptop because it can take a bullet and still go. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So that's why I still have it. That's why I have one. But my gaming PC, which is the size, well, I could fit a small family in, um, that can run anything, pretty much anything. Um, it's even got a mid-range graphics card, which is very strange these days, apparently. Uh, <laughs> oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Bitcoin. Anyway, Ben, it's yeah. been fantastic having you on um i hope you enjoyed yourself i know i did yeah this was a lot of fun thanks so much yeah it's uh it's a different show and uh, i like to think i delve deep as much as i can in the the complex art of game design and i hope you got something out of this so um again thank you very much and uh you're more than welcome to come back on to talk about your next project whatever that may be Oh, thanks. Yeah, th- this was really wonderful. I liked all of the questions. They were very designery questions that I'm really happy to answer. Awesome. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review, and you can also don't forget listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com, and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory, and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer, you listen to the show, and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the stablemate podcast, should we say, of spong.com. Bye!